Friends and enemies, it's episode 320 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, jo- joining us after the fact when he's mixing, uh, producing, engineering, doing all the good stuff to make us sound great. Um, but right now, it's me and Ed coming at you. Um, got, got a number of things I want to get across in today's episode. number of things that I think will actually lead us really nicely into the premium episode that we're going to be uh, recording later in the week, um, looking at the chapter of Sora Mao's book on the capitalist reconfiguration of nature. Um, and there's been a couple uh, articles coming out, a lot of reporting coming out right now around capitalism and climate change um, that I, I really want us to dig into. But first, but first, before we get into that, I got I got to give a shout out, um, you know, because we we were in, you know, we were in the Guardian. The the Lud Wrecking Crew um, is coming at you. We us and Yadowski. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, you know, we are large and in charge. I was a little like so was, you know, the Guardian had this uh, nice long piece that kind of um, uh, the anchor piece for a new series they're running on called Life Unplugged, a no tech special. Um, and they had this long piece on um, on neo luddism, uh, you know, featuring many many of our comrades. Um, but I was a little, I was a little like twisted when i opened the piece up and it starts with fucking eliza yakowski uh just giving him a a, a lot of airtime right up front and i was like man th- th- this is the classic shit that we as luddites have to be like uh always guarding against is is when 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 we when people try to lump idiots like yakowski into the uh the well-considered position of luddism <laughs> Well, that's why I think the piece, when I opened that, I was worried, but it actually did a good job based on how I was looking at it. And I think how a lot of people I talked to the piece about looked at it where they're like, okay, he is the most radical, you know, out of, and all the voices he's talking about airstrikes on data centers and nuking computation infrastructure. And we're, we sound rational being like, we should sabotage things. We should ban certain types of technology, you know? So the framing device there was uh, Tom Lamont. He was a very good interviewer, and I had a great time talking with him. And so I, I, by the end, I came to appreciate the framing device, even though at the beginning I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I know. It is true. It, like, I guess it does. It's annoying to have him, like, le- le- like lumped in with, like, uh, a thing on on Luddism, but you are right. Like the framing actually worked really well because, like, there was a piece where um, 
both me and Riley Quinn from Trash Future were being quoted in the same paragraph. And it was a paragraph talking about how we were the the middle grounders, like me yes. and Riley were the middle grounders. And I was like, I have never in my life been called a middle grounder. <laughs> but, but it was rhetorically really uh, effective at making our otherwise like extreme position by by comparison to the 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 vast majority of other people it was really effective at making us seem like the uh the rational considered uh, compromise position (laughs) it was um, it was great you know and it was like like now my friends love quoting back some of the pieces like talking about especially when they're like oh no we have five years left actually we have we have 10 years left before it's all over (laughs) no (laughs) not quite but thanks for the contribution fam but it was great to see the extended universe all all put together and and coming off really great you know molly especially i really loved um her contributions riley i was really excited to see in there uh to hear also about the luddite uh, radio hour i mean all of these things were really it's really exciting like i just didn't think we'd get such a you know nice sympathetic treatment from someone who you know as far as i can tell is not a luddite themselves but is interested in like listening to us and talk about it tom asked a lot of really interesting uh questions about it um but i would have only expected like someone who else was also a luddite to write this like this would be something like me or you this would i I, that sort of framing would be kind of like how me or you or brian you know who also wrote his um you know pearl luddite piece in uh, the atlantic um this is something i would expect from that sort of corner not you know from the guy who's just like assigned a piece to say like go out and talk to some luddites <laughs> yeah no for sure it was a real like generous and almost like love like you could tell he came around to it by the end of the piece he was like i'm a you know like like i'm a luddite too i didn't know i yeah. was until you know yeah. i was like yeah it was a real generous profile I, I i was i was really pleased um i did like the groupings that they had here the only like yeah because it was like me and riley were often kind of grouped together um and then you and molly crabapple were grouped together um and that was dope all they had to do was uh they just needed to like dig up ted kaczynski's body and put it <laughs> next to eliza yudkowski uh <laughs> as like this this is um this is the face of luddism that you don't want right this is the th- this is the luddites who themselves uh you know these these are the people who are grouped in with luddites who themselves hate everything that the uh, actual Luddites st- uh, stood for. Um, they're just grouped in because they uh, they say, you know, terroristic things about technology. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, maybe the one downside is if we're not already on a list, you doubt Yakoutsi has uh, helped put us on it. Uh, but <laughs> you know. I know, I know. I'm, I'm, wait, I'm waiting for that that FBI file to. Uh, I'm waiting for King Klippenstein to uh, make our FBI <laughs> file <laughs> uh, through a FA, a Freedom of Information Act. Uh, be like, there, there's a there's an FBI file on the on Luddites. You know, it's like it's 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 ne- it's filed next to like Weather Underground. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. Black Panthers. Black Panthers. <laughs> massive question mark by my name and then an arrow to the black panthers section <laughs> i mean it does help that you were looking 
very fly and very uh, like African nationalist in the uh, oh, in the yeah, picture yeah. Um, that yeah. they have of you. <laughs> I know. I Just with some- your big, uh, your big fucking dope chunky dreads and like uh, the real like Pan Africa, uh, you know, outfit you had on. Like, man, looking real good. <laughs> Thank you. I was Thank loving you. it. I know I was. It was a fun little photo shoot too. I need to get the rest of those photos because I would love them as headshots. Because I was like, I'm looking good. All right, okay. I haven't and the done caption for the photo of you. One, I wasn't expecting a photo of you. So as I was reading the piece, I was like, Oh, okay, that's Ed. What's <laughs> up, Ed? And I love the caption that they have of you. Edward Anqueso Jr. believes neo Luddites need to quote make the system scream as the original <laughs> Luddites did. <laughs> it's like fuck yes, that's so good. <laughs> yes. yes, yes, I was so happy about that. And then also ending the piece on that, I was so happy about that. I was like, yes, yeah, you got the closing word. That was a gr- that was great. Oh, it's good. Hell yeah! So just a just an all around. Um, yeah, me and you both kind of like close it out because it's like the sec the the pen ultimate uh, paragraph is uh, me and, is quotes from me and Riley, and then the last paragraph is basically just a big quote from you. Um, and so like that 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 was and uh, that that was a that was a pleasant surprise to see um, published. So I'll, I'll throw a link to that in the episode description if if people want to check it out. Um, but the Lud Wrecking Crew, man, we we're getting we're getting inches now. Like we're getting some uh, some real coverage, um, and I'm I'm loving it. Mm-hmm. And it's good. It's good. Nice coverage. You know, no one is listening to David Friedman's machinery of freedom bullshit. You know, framing of the Luddites. <laughs> That's it's de June. That's gone. The revisionism is almost complete. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's been a little while um, since we've done a uh, insurance crisis watch, um, and I want to. I want to. There, there's been a, a lot of reporting just in the last few weeks coming out in like mainstream outlets, really showing that the the crisis is is continuing to boil over. Um, this is like you know, I, I like to say now. That, you know, insurance is one of those industries that if you're reading about it in the mainstream news, like if you're reading um, headlines about insurance, um, not just in the FT or the Wall Street Journal, but also in like uh, NBC News or ABC News, um, if you're reading like you know, headlines constantly in the New York Times. Like, if you're reading headlines about the insurance industry, it is not indicative that something is going wrong. It is a sign that something has already gone wrong. Uh, the, the 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 monster is already banging down the door, um, and and that that is certainly proving to be the case as like more and more coverage comes out. Um, uh, that insurance at like all levels, uh, all types of of, of of domains, all types of areas of coverage um, is just in fucking complete death spiral tailspin. And it's a real like, and we're bringing you all down with us kind of situation. I want to give a, a quick 
look through a couple headlines. And then there's a really big piece in the FT that I want to drill deeper into um, called The Uninsurable World, What Climate Change is Costing Homeowners, which really nails some uh, a bigger theme I want to talk about this, this whole week with the free and premium episode, which is the relationship between climate and capital, right? Because I think we're seeing how this relationship is becoming like so much more consequential. It's not that it's becoming more intertwined. It's always been intertwined. Climate change is a product and a consequence of capitalism, uh, of industrial capitalism, and then financial capitalism really putting pedal to the metal in terms of like accelerating um, the kind of uh, extraction uh, of, of resources and the most like, you know, most profitable, but also the most um, destructive way possible. So it's not that like climate and capital are becoming intertwined, but rather we are seeing the consequences of climate on capital, which is a real like, hey, you're not supposed to like turn the gun on me kind of thing. You know, like we're supposed to be holding you up. This is a stick up where we're robbing you. But now, but now the gun is being turned on me. Uh, and that that's kind of like what we're seeing now with the insurance industry um, and with the larger financial sector is they're, they're finally having to shape up to the fact that like climate is coming for them. Climate is turning the gun on them. Um, and now, now they're trying to uh, grab as many human shields as possible to throw in between them, the insurance sector, the financial sector, the real estate sector, you know, the fire sector is trying to throw as many human shields between them and the uh, the the catastrophic consequences of climate change, and that's that's really the story here. Um, but 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 first, just a a, a couple like another yeah another like indicative headline um, from the ABC News, the, the Australian um, the uh, kind of the the Australian broadcaster that. Uh, the headline here is health insurers accused of charging more for top level hospital cover than price caps set by federal government. Now, what this means, this is really indicative of things that I'm seeing uh, uh, constantly now where um, the insurers, uh, whether it's in health, it's in car, it's in home, like, and we'll get to all three of those um, as, as we go on the, the episode, but insurers are, now really operating in this era of like of like increased cost right so like they're having to deal with much larger and more expensive losses but they're also having to deal with um much uh, like thinner operating margins um for their business like any business they're you know they're looking for for ways to price gouge for ways to uh you know uh, capture more profit for ways to shirk any of the obligations of cost or loss um that they might have to carry on their books um and doing so in some of the most egregious ways possible that really fly in the face of the existing laws that are meant to um, you know, whether, however effective or not, like meant to at least rein in some of these uh, uh, worst tendencies of the insurance industry. This this piece by ABC is based on a big report from um, from Choice, which is Australia's primary consumer research and advocacy um, organization. And Choice found in their report um, that 
private insurers, health insurers in Australia have been increasing their average premiums um, by uh, by on average 30% uh, increases during the last three years. Um, this is the legal cap for premium increases set by the government is uh, 8.6%, right? And so you have here you see insurers just blatantly uh, uh, breaking the law, breaking these regulations by blowing past the 8.6% cap on uh, premium increases to an average of 30%. This is, but the uh, choice found that like um, insurers like HBF increased their uh, coverage by 46.9%. Uh, Metabank increased their coverage by 43%. Uh, NIB Qantas, 36.4%. So like that 30% average has on the other end of it uh, massive, like even further, further increases. And this is shit I've been seeing constantly now. Not just like, this is not just a little one-off anomaly, but like, the insurance industry has been constantly just blowing past like regulation saying that shit don't apply to me. Market conditions have changed. Um, it's a, it's a new world. We, we, we got, we, we don't, we don't play by those rules anymore. Um, and it's really egregious, man. It is insane. Um, you know, one of the things that we've talked about at length also is the ways in which, you know, all these, corporate-centric forms of governance, insurance, but also the integration of data technologies into various mechanisms of control in the workplace and daily life and in regulating the rhythms of life um, are unchallenged, poorly understood, rarely, you know, talked about it in the plain terms as they are and continue to grow and grow and grow, right? You know, insurers have spent the past few decades building a beautiful set of walls and moats that allowed them to operate with relative impunity over this key part of people's lives, both with, with health insurance, but also in other aspects of your life that require insurance, right? But health being a major focus because of how much of what you do is fed back into or affects your coverage in a system which doesn't provide you healthcare to begin with, right? Um, and now the integration of these digital of digital technologies it makes this only worse, and it's hard to anticipate or see. Uh, I, I can see regulators responding to these reports by maybe some individual actions against insurers, but they won't do anything to change the, the structure, the political economy going on here, right? The impunity with which they act. Uh, the centrality of the you know of of this form of insurance over people's lives and the way in which they modulate their own behavior in response to it. I mean, one way, you know, we could kind of excise this entirely. I mean, you know, of course, sound like you know standard little commie talking point is you know if people had public health care, right? But public health care not only because you know you should have health care and you shouldn't have to worry about that going through your life, but because when we ins- decide to introduce a market here, we're also just introducing like another uh, another concentration of power that gets to, for no reason other than a relationship 
you're not interested in having uh, dominate the ways in which you you live and punish you for them, right? Or try to steer you towards them and engage in massive social engineering project uh, 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 projects uh, to try to get you to act this way or that way. Not even for your own well being, right? Not that if it were for your own well being, that would be you know more defensible, but uh for the profit of just for the point of profit right for the point of marshalling people into just more readily profitable and juicier line items and that is like the modus operandi that's not ever going to be challenged even if like you know government brings down the fucking hammer on this on, on these insurers which they should right because the core imperative the core incentive is this is a systemic thing that will drive and continue to you know, drive the way that these firms behave and it will only accelerate as they get more tools uh, to get more insight into your life or to evade regulatory scrutiny or to just confuse regulators straight up and, and, and make them, you know, not really understand the transfer of power and authority and agency that's going on. Yeah. They are so driven to, to, to not to increase the, the level of care or the quality of care or the expand expand access to care, but they're driven to uh, increase their profits. Like the, the way that they're getting around these regulatory caps on premium increases is so is simultaneously so stimp so stupidly simple, but also so clever that I'm sure whatever lawyers came up with it at the uh, insurance companies, like you know, they 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 bought a, a beach house with the bonus they oh, got yeah. for this, you know. It's uh, the 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 tactic here, or one of the major tactics that they're doing is what they're they're close they they're just closing down old policies, right? And so they're they're like you know rather than renewing your policy, they just close it down and then they open up a new policy. So it's like you know you sunset an old policy and you you create a new product and new policies for that product. That that poli- that new policy is essentially the same exact thing as the old policy, but because it's new, they can price it differently, right? And so they're able to uh, set the price much much higher for it because it's not changing the price of an old policy; it's establishing the price for a new policy, right? And it's like it says so stupid that you that they can be allowed to do that. Um, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, if you're going to give them a fucking loophole that big to drive through, uh, obviously they're going to just like, just con- just be driving through it. Right. Just, 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 uh, you know, going through it as fast as they can. It's full of these sort of loopholes, right? I'm working on a piece with my partner about insulin. And one of the things that just like kind of boggles my mind and that has been boggling my mind is like with, for example, you know, the pr- provision of, of insulin, there are multiple forms of it and there are multiple industrial processes to develop it, but it basically is produced in an ol- by an oligopoly, right? Um, that has pretty unilateral control over the price setting. And so ostensibly there are regulations in place where you can't hijack the price too much. And if you do, then you don't get access to subsidies through Medicaid that would allow, um, companies or allow people to buy the product and you might be up for a fine. Right. And so when, um, when recent reg- uh, regulations were passed uh, by Biden um, and the Democrats 
the uh, attempt, the hope was to close loopholes that allowed for these companies to take advantage of this and also to continue hiking their prices by imposing, you know, stronger fines and, and, and disincentivizing them from hi- continuing to hijack the prices because they'd have to pay hundreds of millions of dollars. It was cheaper for them to actually just slightly reduce the price of the drugs and then pocket the difference and then you use some of the difference in a marketing campaign to be like, well, out of the goodness of our heart, we have reduced the price of the drugs that did not need to be that high in the first place because we can't we realized it, right? When in reality, what they did is they reduced the price such that now now you can buy now the now demand will go up a little bit for it and you avoid the fine, so your revenue goes up much more than it would have if you just bit the bullet. And it's like, okay, you know, the healthcare system is littered with those sorts of decisions. And then people who look at those decisions and say, well, that's fine, right? Because the outcome is good. The price goes down and we still get to have this compensatory regulatory structure that allows people who still can't afford that to get access to it. But it would have been much better if we didn't have to do the fucking one-two dance in the first place, right? As is the case here, right? These structures are the consequences of the, the delusion that people have about uh, allocation of resources for healthcare through the market being the best possible way and erecting all these complex filters and mechanisms and, and bureaucracies you have to deal with that then get spun as the real problem and not the fact that we commodified health in the first place. And to that exact point, you mentioned like universal health care. Well, ostensibly, Australia does have universal Medicare. Um, you know, they, there is a, there is public health here, socialized health. There is all of the things that the Bernie campaign fought so hard for in this like utopian vision of like single payer universal Medicare. Like that's what Australia has. But we also have a very, um, like a booming private health insurance sector where you're like, well, why? Why is that the case? It's because like, why should, why am I, why are we reading and talking about stories like the private health insurance industry in Australia, price gouging people, uh, and increasing, you know, and, and doing in runs on regulatory caps and stuff? We shouldn't be reading about a private ins- health insurance industry in Australia at all. But the reason why is because, uh, they were very successful when, when Medicare got passed here to put, laws in the books that make it such that you get a uh, a tax penalty if you don't have a private insurance policy in addition to the Medicare, right? And so they've created, much like ACA, much like the Obamacare did by creating a, a captive market for the private health insurance industry by mandating people to have insurance, Australia did a softer version of that where you're not mandated to have private insurance, but if you don't have a private insurance policy, you get a tax penalty. And that tax penalty can stack. So for every every year after age 30 that you don't have private hospital cover, you get a 2%, what's called 2% loading added to any future insurance policy that you might buy, right? 
And, and that stacks every year. It's 2%, 2%, 2%. So by the time you're 40, you've got a 20% loading. By the time you're 50, right, you've got this 40% loading. By the time you're 60, you've got a 60% loading. Uh, and, and such that if you try to buy private uh, coverage later in life, you might be paying anywhere from, you know, 10, 20, up to like 60 or 70% of an additional loading on that insurance as a penalty for not having insurance earlier in your life. In addition to a yearly uh, like levy surcharge added to your taxes every year um, that you don't have private health insurance, it's like a, like a, like a two, anywhere from like a two to three percent um, tax levy added to your income, uh, and th- this is the 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 insurance industry was. I mean, hats off to them for getting all of this written into the tax law um, as a way to ensure that they uh, would maintain a profitable market environment, despite their this despite them not uh, having any reason to exist. That is such a massive asterisk to a socialized healthcare system. <laughs> by the way, we have a marketplace that you're required by law to join. And if you don't, we'll punish you for it and assume that you didn't have it because you're unhealthy. And so you'll have to pay higher costs up front to make up for all the years you were more unhealthy and without coverage because then you got even more unhealthy. And you didn't let our firms collect data on you. Yeah. A lot of like financial advisors and accountants and stuff will recommend people buy the most basic um, health insurance policy. Uh, An insurance policy you'll never be able to claim anything on, um, but they recommend you just buy the most basic one because it's uh, ultimately comes out to be cheaper um, and uh, because it eliminates that tax penalty. Um, and so it, it, having a health insu- a, a basic health insurance policy, private insurance policy will end up saving you money um, in your taxes. So, but what that essentially means is y- instead you are just paying a tax to the insurance industry because it, but, but you're not getting anything in return because yeah, the insurance yeah. industry here also is the same as the insurance industry everywhere else where like, even if you get these gold Cadillac plans, even then they are constantly trying to, um, nickel and dime you. Yeah. Nickel and dime you exclude, like, uh, levy you with exclusions, uh, you know, try to do everything they can to not pay out and stuff. So even if you get the gold, the gold Cadillac plan, you know, it's not doing you a huge amount of good. And in addition to this, so a lot of like one of the policy arguments, and this is what's happening in the UK right now with the uh, the booming private health insurance industry in the UK, despite them having a national health service, um, the the private insurance health insurance industry is also booming um, in terms of like its growth, but also in terms of its profits. Um, but one of the policy arguments that's always trotted out, and it's a, it's a, it's a, one of these lines that was like, you know, created, signed, sealed, and delivered by lobbyists for the insurance industry. But the argument is, is that it's a, a pressure valve for the, the public health insurance sector, right? Private health insurance is meant to serve as a way to alleviate pressure from the public system, right? That's the argument. 
recent research by, I mean, that argument's always been spurious, but there was recent research by economists um, that did a, a really uh, a, a big study on this and found that there is uh, l- little to no evidence that the private health insurance industry actually serves in any way to alleviate pressure um, from the public insurance uh, sector. It does not it does not shorten wait times. It does not uh, uh, lessen, you know, patients. It does not do, e- you know, it does not do any of the things that um, it is argued to do. It does not make care cheaper um, to provide, or more convenient, or faster, or more expansive. None of that. So the core argument here, which. I mean, it's obvious it was an argument that was created out of the mind of an insurance lobbyist, um, you know, just the, uh, just kind of backcasting the logic um, from what they wanted. Uh, like, but, but even then, like the research shows that that does not hold water at all, which also shows if you have a, a socialized health care sector, there is no reason to have a private health insurance industry. And yet, in all these places we see with socialized health care, um, we see a booming, profitable uh, private health insurance industry, too. Wow, Jathan, you're telling me if, I, if you saw me walking around with a parasite conjoined to my hip, you would tell me I got to kill it? You want me to get rid of it? What about the parasite? What about its needs? What about what it wants? You know, yeah, sure. It sucks all the nutrients from my body and is killing me slowly but surely. But I mean, you want me to? What do you want to do? Get rid of it? What if it helped you one day? When yeah, you, like, you know? like what if it possibly like one day helped you when you needed it? I mean, I'm not or saying it will, like, but it could. Yeah. <laughs> what if one day? What if like you know, I had this parasite. And then my children had the parasite and my grandchildren had the parasite and my great grandchildren parasite had the parasite. And one day it helped one of them out. You know, would you, how would you feel if I got rid of it today? I bet you'd feel real silly. (laughs) It's wild, man. This is so ridiculous to me. I didn't really understand. I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was, that that feels like that's a, that is such a massive asterisk. We have socialized medicine, but and this is a really big but we have a massive 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 giveaway and subsidy of the parasites who uh undermine the ability of the social of the public healthcare system to operate and they don't help yeah. at all it would be one thing what what's the def- what's the defense of it over there because it would be one thing if it had even any positive effect it doesn't sound like it has much of any positive effect on the healthcare system based on that report you just laid out so what what's the defense that people give over in australia for having a private system in addition to the public system so the yeah so the the actual like argument here um it really only makes sense if you're able to afford like like one of the gold cover plans like one of the kind of cadillac plans because then then there there are private hospitals and private clinics which only take pr- either out of pocket payment or private insurance and those and so the argument here is an argument for um you know increased privileges for rich people right because th- the argument is that like 
Well, if you have private insurance, then you can like, you know, if you go have a, if you go to the hospital, you can have like a private room, right? It might be nicer. Um, you, if you give, you know, you give, have surgery or give birth, right? You can have like a longer hospital stay in more comfortable environments. You might have like shorter waiting times for like elective surgeries and things like that, right? Because you can go to a private hospital or a private clinic to get those things done, so it in the grand scheme of things, it it does it has no effect in terms of like alleviating pressure on the public system. But in the individual level, it does give rich people an option to have like a better, like a higher quality of kind of like concierge care that they would not be able to get. Uh, if they were only going through Medicare, that's really the only reason for it to exist is to give uh, like like people with expendable income the ability to have like, you know, uh, to, to not have to be in the uh, to deal with the public system, which let me be clear. The public system is great and it works. It works fine. It, you might not get like a Tempur-Pedic queen size mattress with a private, you know, hotel style room uh, in the hospital at a public system. Um, but like that, to me, that's like the only real reason here, right? It's to allow people with expendable income to give themselves a different class of of, of health care, like luxury health care um, that they would not otherwise get. The, the quality of the health care itself, as far as I know, is still exactly the same, but it's the quality of the experience of the health care that's different. That's so funny. They're, they they sabotage the public health care system so you could get white glove service. That's This is so fucking insane to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> You know, capitalism is worldwide. You know, that's the the same sickness everywhere. And that's why if, you know, with with the as you know, if the fight for um, like universal Medicare ever picks back up steam again and if and got, you know, uh, you know, if it ever actually goes anywhere in the U.S., central to that must be a. A smothering of the private sector. Not a. There, there's no. There's no room for a two-state solution um, between private <laughs> insurance and socialized, uh, you know, healthcare. Um, it has to be elimination of the private sector. Right. Right. Yeah, I can get behind that. Euthanize the rentiers. That's euthanize right. The rentiers. When in doubt, euthanize the rentiers. That's right. Well, speaking of uh, other uh, rentiers who uh, need to be euthanized, but instead are euthanizing all of our wallets, um, <laughs> let's move on to uh, another. So the the FT, let's jump over to the Financial Times and stay there for a minute. Um, but Alphaville in particular has been running a um, for for like a year and a half now or so has been running a a, a series of of articles looking at like car insurance. And the way that car insurance um, in the UK and in the US, as well as in Australia, um, all over the place, really, car insurance is just out of fucking control right now. Alexandra Skaggs over at FT Alphaville had a, a, a piece um, titled Auto Insurance Costs Rear Their Ugly Head Yet Again, and is showing that the you know, car insurance rates are continue to skyrocket. They're going up and up and up 
far outpacing inflation, right? Which really gives a lot of uh, indications of greedflation happening with uh with something like car insurance. You know, they are going. You know, they they have a lot of you know legitimate. I think to a degree excuses for why their rates keep going up, but I don't think they have anywhere near as as legitimate excuses for why the rates keep going up so much and continue to keep going up. But you know, insurers blame things like you know, supply chain, right? Like there's an increased cost of repairing cars. And so obviously that gets passed on to um, consumers, right? When like car parts are more expensive or harder to find, that means insurers have to bear larger costs, which then gets passed on through premiums. It's also things like, you know, they, they claim that like the, uh, like accidents. Um, so like the number uh, and severity of, of crashes, um, is increasing as well, which means higher losses and so on. But it doesn't really justify, I don't think, um, these findings from the latest uh, Consumer Pricing Index report, which found that um, as the uh, as 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 Alexandra writes in FT Alphaville, quote. The cost of insuring an automobile has climbed nearly 21% over the past year, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It rose nearly 2% in January without seasonal adjustments. The analysts at Employ America have also highlighted auto insurance's role in the recent gap between the CPI and the Fed's favored PCE indicator uh, and, and reckon that part of the gap could very possibly narrow in the future. So what they found is that motor vehicle insurance has been a, has been a subtly large contributor to the core CPI uh, in the last six months. And so... You know, when you look at the actual like consumer pricing index reports, right? Like, um, you know, they're showing that, you know, prices for, for goods are going up in single digit percentages for the most part. And then you scroll down and you look under the, the heading of transportation services, you see a massive jump. And then when you look into that set, like what is like what's included in transportation services, most of that big jump has come from the increase in car insurance, right? And so like the the things that have been the most pronounced um, increases of like from in the last year, um, so from the start of last year to the start of this year, the, the things that have been in contributing the most to this massive price increase from the uh, consumer pricing index has been um, kind of like basically like four main categories of goods. Prescription drugs have gone up massively. Tobacco has gone up massively. Medical service has gone up massively. So that you know speaks back to health insurance, uh, and car insurance has gone up massively. So those are the four like most pronounced contributors to the uh, CPI's um, uh, price increases: D prescription drugs, tobacco, medical services, and car insurance. What are we going to do about these guys? <laughs> <laughs> man, they are. You gave the parasite analogy before. My man, it ain't one parasite attached to you. It's a whole fucking family of parasites, and they're all sucking you from different ways. Uh, and it ain't nice. It ain't nice to be no. sucked in different ways this time. No, it's, it's <laughs> painful, and it's killing me slowly. It hurts. I wanted to stop. Get, get over here with your medical care, your health care. Get a little bit of that. 
oh, you gotta have a car. I'm getting a little bit of that as we're about to talk about. Oh, you 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 trying to have a house to live in? I'm gonna get nope. a little bit of that too. <laughs> Oh, you want to do a little tobacco to get away from it? Well, we're gonna get a, we're gonna get a lot of that. We're gonna get a lot of that, and then that is going to compound by having a direct effect on increasing your health and life insurance uh, as right, well, um, massively and irreversibly. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh God, isn't capitalism such a great? System? You can't have any essentials. Can't get what you need, and you can't have any vices. You can't get what you want. Um, that's the life. That's the world we live in now. Can't get what you need, and you can't get what you want. It's beautiful. This is this this is beautiful. You pay for. You can't get what you want, but you got to pay for it. And you can't get what you need, but you got to pay for it. So what do you get? You get what you get. That's yeah. what you get. That's right. <laughs> It deserve. ain't much, but it's yours. <laughs> there is a really, uh, like a wild article in the New York Times on these. Uh, on this experiment called natural asset companies. And I think what we will do instead, because for the premium episode, as I said at the top of the show, we've got the next chapter of Mute Compulsion, which is called The Capitalist Reconfiguration of Nature. And so I think what we will do is let's let's merge our discussion of that chapter with a bit of a discussion, maybe a reading series on the, uh, the, the article about natural asset companies. How's that sound? Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good to me. All right. Well, that's a little teaser then on the premium feed for what's to come. Let's, let's then jump over to this big piece. Um, the big read in the FT, uh, just last week, titled The Uninsurable World, What Climate Change is Costing Homeowners. Now, when I said earlier that like the crisis is not knocking, it, the monster is already banging down the door, uh, like I, the fact that the FT has a, an article called The Uninsurable World is wild on its own, but it also marries very well with the fact that like the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago had an article titled, It is Impossible to Buy Car and Home Insurance. Uh, and it was also a long read uh, in the Wall Street Journal. And like, I've been seeing, you know, very similar articles um, from all over the place that are like, uh, you know, it's, it is, the world is uninsurable. It is impossible to buy insurance. Uh, risk is coming for us all, <laughs> you know, like. And a like, collective he, shrug. <laughs> yeah, uh, truly, true. Like it is, it is, it is not good. Um, so you know, we talked about health. We talked about car. This uh, this article is really talking about home insurance um, and the fact that, like, you know, as every as anybody who's maybe been paying halfway attention to the news, or certainly anyone who has been listening to TMK um, for for the last little bit, you know, knows that like. Insurers are responding to the increased risk from climate change. 
um, and the in particularly the increased like pricing models um, from what it's going to cost to insure um, homes and and property uh, in a, in climate change and in like contemporary, not just future, but like contemporary climate uh, conditions. You know, anybody who's been paying halfway attention knows that like major insurers have been completely exiting markets like California and Florida. Um, anybody who maybe has to buy home insurance, which for the most part is is a condition of having a mortgage. Um, like, you know, your mortgage debt has a requirement to have home insurance, um, you know, and so like anybody who's has to buy home insurance, even if you're trying to buy renter's insurance, um, you know, you, you know, because it's hit your pocketbook, uh, that the prices are fucking insane, that getting a policy is really hard, um, that like insurers are, you know, if, if insurers are not just exiting your mark, like your market altogether, then insure in, in other markets, insurers are, um, at the, like dropping, long often like sometimes long-standing customers just dropping them being like nope don't want to renew your policy we are uninterested in doing business with you anymore and they will just suddenly drop you maybe if there's like a law on the books that says they have to give you notice before they do it you might have like a month notice that in a month you don't have home insurance anymore um, because we're dropping you so then that's putting people in positions of scrambling to find new policies as we as i was as we were talking about earlier with health insurance this is great for insurers because old policies are locked into those condition the conditions of that policy or locked into like regulatory constraints and caps in terms of like how much you can increase or uh, prices or change conditions of an existing policy at renewal time um all, you know in the US insurers have to file price increase uh, paperwork with state-based uh, insurance commissions right so they have to they have to just they have to explain justify and then get approval for price increases um, but if you can get, if, if people are signing on to new policies well that that you just you know then then, it, then you're free to set prices and set conditions at the rates that you say are like, you know, those are the insurable rates, right? Because it's a new policy. And so this is exactly what's happening with home insurance. People are getting dropped from their existing policies. They're having to shop around um, to get new policies. Sometimes getting a new policy at the exact same insurer that just dropped them, but sometimes, uh, you know, having to go get policies at other insurers. And but these these insure these these policies are going up where it's like you're paying 200 300% increases on your premium um just all of a sudden instantly right they have a the this FT piece has a story here of a of a guy Michael Hefner who was a US Navy officer which also the insurers don't even respect the troops anymore ed what is this world coming to uh you know things are bad when the insurers are like fuck the troops you know like i, I don't care y'all got money too give it to me you know i think also thinking about this you know, and, and and this is a sidebar that we can continue. I was just like thinking about like what does the renegotiation look like? I mean, we're not going to be able to abolish the in insurance industries, and in the climate catastrophe, a lot of the d coming carnage is baked in, 
right? Because we've hit certain levels of warning and are unlikely to avoid other levels of warming. So it's like, what does a renegotiation of things look like beyond exiting markets and higher premiums? I think there's a number of options here. And le- yeah, let's get into that. So just just real quick on the the, the piece about the naval, because I think it really, un- it really exemplifies this as well, where, you know, this guy went from, he was in Virginia Beach, right? He went from paying a $1,200 a year uh, homeowner's uh, insurance policy to the best he could find was quotes ranging between $2,000 to $3,000, right? That's just normal. I've been seeing that. Like that is like normal now where you get dropped from your existing policy where you were like, it was a lot, you know, but you were able to handle it. You know, you were able to handle that, you know, the $100, maybe $200, uh, you know, premium a month on your insurance policy, no longer possible to even get that that level, like to to get a policy that good, right? Now, now you're looking at you know two fifty, three hundred, three fifty. If someone will a month, if someone will even sell you a policy at all, right? So things are going really bad. So this really opens the question of like, well, like one, why? Why are things going so suddenly bad uh, in the uh, insurance market? And two, like, what are we going to do about it, right? Um, so I think the why things are going bad uh, does nicely prefigure the, the like, response to what we should do about it. So let, let's maybe talk about, like, why things are going bad, and then we'll end the episode being like, and what should we do about it, right? Because I think... I think what we are doing about it right now, or like what I'm seeing, what I'm, what I see being done about it right now, is is uh, is not surprise, surprise, not the the correct or good or best uh, response. Um, that actually, well, not not if not if uh, you, what you value is having something like um, affordable, uh, uh, like an affordable safety net uh, for people in an otherwise uncertain and insecure world. Um, If you value something like that, if you value something like, you know, um, insurance. (laughs) Yeah. You know, if you value something like the social obligations of risk sharing and cost sharing that come with like living in a society together, um, then like, then, then the responses to the why things are going bad uh, to, are, are, maybe, are, are not aligned with those kinds of cares. Um, they are aligned with other cares. Um, those cares are, um, fuck you, pay me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where's my fucking money? Yeah. 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 All right. Why are things going bad then? Um, there, I think there, there's a number of kind of like competing arguments happening here at, at once. So... So for uh for insurance from for insurance firms what they're saying are things like you know and this is true like losses are going up and like big loss years are happening more often just as we keep seeing like 100 year floods happening like every every couple years um you know a a like a catastrophic loss loss year for the insurance industry is something is it would be like something over a hundred billion dollars of total losses um it, worldwide like you know that would that's that would be pretty rare um to have like from natural catastrophes right so from from storms from tornadoes from hurricanes from floods from 
from droughts, from extreme temperatures, like, you know, any, like topping a hundred billion dollars in worldwide loss, insurance losses from, from natural catastrophes would, would be the mark of a remarkably bad year, um, in any other time period. We are now, uh, on the fourth consecutive year of topping hundred billion dollar insurance losses. So, so things are going bad and they are much worse than, than, than they have ever been before in terms of the losses from climate change. Now, there's a lot going on when you actually, when you dig into that. Like, why are the losses so bad? I think this is also indicative as to why insurance is really is freaking out and doing a very sudden course correction by drastically raising prices and dropping policies. A lot of it is, um, that everyone has had their head in the fucking sand, their the head in their fucking asses about climate change uh, until now, right? The FT had a really good, um, uh, a really good quote from a anonymous chief executive at a big insurer, right? And they had a couple good quotes from like these like chief executives or like big insiders from major insurers talking anonymously because they were talking real shit, like given being like, this is what it's actually, (laughs) this is what's actually happening, not what we say is happening. But they had a great thing, uh, a great quote from an anonymous CEO who said, quote, the insurance industry had its head in the sand around climate change. It's a gigantic pain and it tried to avoid it. It will spend the next few years looking at at it and it will figure out how to do things better. So this is really indicative, I think, of like one reason why things are going so bad is because the insurance industry has been ignoring climate change as a real material concern. There was recent reporting a few months ago, I remember this, like uh, in the FT actually, that was showing that major financial models for climate risk were doing things like... uh, assuming that GDP would hold constant in a like post-climate catastrophe scenario. Stupid, 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 stupid. Hard to express how stupid that is. <laughs> it's, it's one of the dumbest assumptions you can operate with. And so they were building strategies based on assumptions like that. They were, they were creating prices and risk products based on uh, strategies like that they were doing a, like risk assessments and analysis and future like future scenario planning on a, based on assumptions and models like that so obviously stupid right even in like a 1.5 degrees uh, centigrade increase there are radical shifts in the habitability of like major parts of the world huge shifts in weather patterns that might be irreversible for the foreseeable or hard to hard to reverse with any technology we know of for the moment. Um, and um, not to sound like a techno optimist. Um, and there are, you know, changes to where we can live, where we can get food, where we can get water, where we can go in the daytime, where we can go at the nighttime. What this place looks like in the fall, winter, spring and summer. So it's so crazy to me. 
that they thought, oh, well, uh, <laughs> the economy will be the same. <laughs> that, that's a, that's market brain. That is market brain thinking. It's like this beast in a cave that you go and you feed your little offerings to, and then it continues to hum along, powering the rest of the world. And not that uh, the material world is going to eat shit in a lot of real ways because it's not ready for what's coming. Yeah, which meant there was no not ready for it means no preparation for it. And that's essentially what has happened. There's been no preparation for the realities of the the cost and severity of, of like climate change. And so, you know, insurance executives like insurers have been using like these faulty models for climate risk for decades while also speaking out you know the other side of the mouth saying that like you know they're the they're the clear sober analysts right like they know what's going on and they've really been able to benefit from this as well because like you know they're these massive uh you know exiting markets raising premiums dropping policies all of this has been done under the justification of like objective scientific like objective actuarial scientific modeling based on you know the best data available that's the kind of like language that they use to justify these decisions and then when you dig into it though the best modeling available does things like holding gdp constant right the best modeling available does things like um downplaying the cost of climate change you know underplaying uh, the 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 forecasting of loss and you know insurers like are you know the ft talks about how quote some executives in private partially put blame on the risk modeling companies the insurers lean on to forecast losses saying that the effects of climate were underplayed and so here you have insurance uh, com- uh companies saying it wasn't us it was the bad mo- models we got from these other third party climate risk modelers right but also it's like there's a two-way street going on here where like you don't buy like a company doesn't buy uh, a, a model um, because they want to know what's actually going to happen. They buy models that tell them a story that aligns with their own values and their own expectations, right? So if you try to sell a, an insurance company a, a climate model that says your whole industry is going to be literally underwater, um, you're going to have major and massive uh, losses. Um, like unless you uh, put forward like massive outlays of capital expenditure, completely rejigger your entire paradigm and mindset for your business model. Like unless you do these things, you're going underwater and you're going to die uh, as an industry and as a people. No, in the, no insurance company is going to buy that model, right? Or buy that data or buy that forecast, um, or at least they're not going to keep buying it, right? Instead, they want to buy the one that tells them, Everything you're doing is great and perfect and you are such a nice boy uh, and you are justified in everything that you do, right? And here's a few little recommendations we have for how you can keep doing what you're doing, but harder, faster, and stronger, you know? That's the model they're going to buy. Sure, that might not comport with reality, but it's, hey, as long as it's good enough, you know, then then it works. But now we're reaching a point where good enough has stopped working. Um, and and they, the, the industry, but also us, the people, are really having to bear the cost of these extremely idiotic and short-sighted 
uh, decisions. You know, that that's a lot of what's going on here about like why this is going wrong. Um, and, and so what the insurance industry is doing in terms of like raising, you know, exiting markets, raising premiums, dropping policies, what they're doing here is a very sudden uh, attempt at a course correction, right? They are floundering. They are scrambling. They are grasping at straws, grasping at the at other, you know, they're, they're drowning. And like a drowning person who's freaking out, they're flailing around and they're grabbing everything that they, anything they can get their hands on. And they're doing that, but they're also pulling everybody down with them. Right. They're, 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 they're drowning all of us because they are flat, because they are the ones floundering. They are the ones flailing, um, reaching for anything to stay afloat. And instead, through this like very sudden, uh, you know, course correction in their modeling, um, which, you know, which has resulted in these unaffordable and impossible to get policies. Uh, they are instead pulling every, everybody down with us. And I think that's a story about like what's happening here with these massive increases in insurance that is not being told very well in the mainstream news. It's, I think it is told to a degree in this FT article, but even then it requires some critical interpretation and like, like kind of deeper knowledge of what's of the dynamics here to actually interpret what the FT is reporting as um, you know, in terms of like what's happening here, uh, which, which is, you know, th- that's not as, you know, that the story of the insurance industry completely flailing, um, I think largely due to like disasters of their own making is not being told very well. Instead, it's like, it's these exogenous shocks. We could have never seen it coming. Uh, and, or it's our, it's all of our faults. We acted irresponsibly, um, you know, as individuals and as communities. But in reality, like, if you had good models that reflected actual, like, material reality, you could have done a few things much further in advance, right? These hundred, these four consecutive years of hundred billion dollar losses. A lot of that has come from the fact that like there's been no mitigation or resilience strategy for adapting to climate change. If that if if the insurance industry, if the financial sector as a whole had like these these models that actually reflected climate risk in a real uh, a, like accurate way and then if they acted on them in the way that is the most obvious uh, you know, re- reaction to those models, which is to invest heavily into resilience, into adaptation, uh, into mitigating climate change. Uh, then all of these hun- these four consecutive years of hundred billion dollar losses would not have existed. Why? Because there, you know, people would have been more resilient to the uh, effects of climate change. The losses of of of. Uh, economically and in terms of life would be nowhere near as severe. So immediately you're saving money already, right? Like, uh, you know, the, the, as well, any increases of premiums um, that might come from an increased and risky world. I mean, it would not be anywhere near as severe if they had actually invested in, in, you know, um, adaptation and resilience because what we are now finding is a is a sudden course correction towards the cost of risk in a world where no cost, no investment has been put toward mitigating that risk, right? Worst, in other words, a worst case scenario. 
if investment had happened because they had good models um, rather than the models that were good enough for their purposes of, of, of short-term profit, um, then any increases of risk and thus any uh, increases in price would have been much lower. It also would have been known much further in advance, which means it could have been smoothed out a lot better rather than being this sudden year-over-year 300% increase in your premium you know, it would have been smoothed out at a much lower and slower rate. But none of that happened because the insurance industry uh, did not allow any of that to happen, right? Um, and they can blame other people for, for making bad models. They can blame it on, you know, who could have known, right? We could have never, they can do whatever they want. Um, but, you know, they can blame it on everybody else for being irresponsible. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's, it's, we are living in the consequences of decisions made by the insurance industry for the last decades. And now we are living in the consequences of decisions they are making now as they ensure that we bear the brunt of their poor decisions. And it is going to be us who bears the brunt of it because no matter what happens, whether they calibrate and figure out some functional insurance market or whether they just decide to abandon huge places, right? Like we're, like we're teasing a little bit at the top of the hour. There still has to be a great reconfiguration of the fact that insurance, because, because we live in a society, you know, and because we think or try to figure out schemes for spreading risk around is just not going to be around for increasingly larger and larger swaths of this world, right? So it's like, no matter what, they're fine. I don't, I don't even know if there's talks of like figuring out what to do about the fact that like, like, can you even, cl can you claw back premiums? Can you do some massive lawsuits, some class action lawsuit in the future being like, well, like they knowingly entered into this, into, you know, these contracts with the bullshit rates because it would have been easier. It's easier to do that than to do the hard work of spending, <laughs> of spending God knows how much time, but spending time nonetheless trying to calibrate a realistic model. Who knows? It feels more or less like everyone is just fucked, but they were able to pull in God knows how much um, in the meantime because they lied to people and made them buy at a rate that was not realistic um, to get coverage that they thought was safe and continue to structure so many assets and commodities around it, right? But then again, it's like how much stuff do we have right now also is priced, that are, uh, priced in one way or another. I mean – I kind of like, I, I get why they call it a carbon price here, but I kind of hate it because it's like so much of the the modern system just doesn't properly show the real price of things, right? Either because of massive subsidies that are part of our industrial policy to obscure the actual, the real cost and the externalities that come from doing this sort of climate, avert, uh, you know, climate, uh, climate catastrophic industrial process or from just like lying right <laughs> which is just tantamount to doing just lying and saying that you know things are going to be fine when we all know it's very clear that if you have years and years and years and years and years of superstorms and increasing frequency that have never been happening again at the same time as scientific consensus on the warming of the planet and the disruption of its major uh, uh weather patterns right and biomes eventually and ecologies eventually it feels it feels uh, deceptive is putting it nicely. I don't know if it feels even worse because of all the money that's involved or because of all the assets that are intermingled that are also foisted on the people or because this is a governance regime that, you know, you can't escape. You can't escape 
insurance in one way or another, as much as you would like to, like we talked about in the healthcare insurance example, even when you get to a place where you have a public system, the fucking parasites still reign in their ugly ass heads and you can't get away from them, but they can get away with whatever they do and force upon you. It's insane. And I think that speaks directly to your question from before. You know, we had to go a long detour about how we got here, but it's all to the question of like, and what, what do we do about it? Right. I think the, the very clear answer of what do we do about it is uh, eliminate the private insurance sector. Right. Like, like they have shown themselves to be not fit for purpose and in fact, actively harmful, um, to, to all of us. Uh, But instead, you know, what we see is a real dedication to like providing life support for an, a private sector that is itself dedicated to uh, a death drive. I've, I'm actually, I'm writing a paper right now about this called the, uh, uh, on the death drive of insurance. Um, talking about how like there is so like the insurance sector, it really has this like death drive at the heart of it. Whereas like constantly trying to undermine itself um, for like short-term profit and short-term gains. Uh, It's like constantly undermining its own financial, uh, uh, its own financial model, its own social reason for existence, its own mathematical fundamentals about like stochastic analysis of risk. Like it's constantly doing everything to undermine all of these things that keep it going um, because like they are driven by uh, the, these fine, you know, the, these like these short term speculative financial logics. And so I think everything I've just laid out here is yet another case of the death drive where it's like, it's anti-sustainable, right? It's sustainable in like, social environmental sense of sustainability, but it's also anti-sustainable in like the financial sense that like you know uh esg means right like having a sustainable business model uh in a changing world like the insurance sector has shown that it is completely anti-sustainable in every single way um but like but it keeps being propped up it keeps being put on life support by the public sector um by the and and you know the um dft near like near the end of the piece, has, uh, says, quote, In some areas, the question of whether private insurance sector alone can handle the cost of extreme weather has already been answered. In the U.S., U.K., and other countries, a patchwork of state-backed insurers and national reinsurance schemes means that the taxpaying public is already sharing the cost of these risks. That's what's happening here, is that like the state, through a variety of schemes and programs is backstopping the risk, backstopping the profits for the private insurance sector. It is so dedicated to keeping a private insurance sector alive, despite them constantly trying to kill themselves, uh, that like, you know, we, we just end up with this fucking Frankenstein patchwork model where it's the worst of all worlds, right? Where it's like the public sector um, is is paying so much to uh, put the li- the private sector on life support, while also the public sector will not just step in and provide the services that the private sector is meant to be provided. They still say, no, no, the private sector has to do it. The private sector has to do it 
but we have to create the conditions that allow the private sector to do it in a way that is favorable to them, right? Which means essentially what we see here is like socializing the 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 unprofitable risk, you know, the low value high uh, high risk policies while allowing the private sector to take on the high value low risk policies, right? Like that's that's exactly the debate that I think is playing out in places like California. Those insurers that left California are not going to be out of California forever. They are instead holding they are they instead did capital flight from California and are uh, creating a leverage position to negotiate with California such that like the state provides them with more favorable and uh, and thus more profitable market conditions to continue operating in California. None of this is going to like benefit people. Uh, in terms of like doing the social services that an insurance uh, scheme is meant to provide, but it will benefit the insurance companies in terms of like providing them with yet another like shot of adrenaline to an already dying heart, putting them on life support so that they can continue to eke out these short-term profits until finally one day they give up the ghost. Right. But uh, uh, until then, for whatever reason, I mean, we know the reason, um, but until then, the private sector or the, the public sector is dedicated to keeping the private sector alive. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's just as, you know, climate change kind of descends on more and more the economy, one of the more infuriating things that I think can easily induce feelings of helplessness is that so much of our daily lives will be altered not only because of real material changes that climate change will force uh, whether that's accessibility to certain things or goods or services right or the cost of things right or places you can actually go to but because a large section of society, even though they knew what was going on, had no real reason to do anything about it until they literally could stop doing nothing about it, until they until they could no longer stop putting their head in the sand. Like you said, we'll get to step back with all the capital that they've accrued, with all the integrity, you know, the integration into our daily lives. They've also facilitated and accelerated and lobbied for and demand and renegotiate new terms that will be just as, and maybe even more generous towards them. When they have proven that they, and you know, the system they're attached to, are parasitic at best, right? And have no interest, and no real fidelity to any sort of actual social purpose, right? Insurance, whatever we can say about it, is supposed to be ostensibly, in one way or another, a thread, and some sort of safety net or scheme, right, to distribute and maybe reduce risk and ensure that people can get some care protection from accident that occurs. And instead, it has been the site of some of the greediest financiers who suddenly forget how to model things when it's, it's profitable for them. And have put huge swaths of people's, uh, uh, huge numbers of people's livelihood at risk 
ironically enough, just so that they can make a little bit more money and then come back to the table and say, well, you know, we're willing to, you know, revisit this if you give us even more power and more private governance power and more money and more subsidies and more autonomy. This is uh, insane. And it and it is insane to me. Everything we have talked, every single time we talk about insurance is, is, it, it is like, it's just, I, these people are capitalists, you know, <laughs> every single one of these people and firms. When I, when you think of a pig, of a pig in a top hat and a monocle, they work at an insurance company as an executive or some <laughs> motherfucker, you know, that's who it is. Every single time we've ever talked about them, it is the most capitalist shit you have ever heard. And they're going to get away with it from the sounds of it. And they're going to get even richer from it and, and get even more penetration into our daily lives. And it drives, it drives me insane. I don't know how you're writing a book on this to be, <laughs> to be honest, man, <laughs> doing multiple research projects centered on it. I see red every single time we talk or read about insurance in like a way that few things make me do, you know, it's, uh, you, you let the hate flow through you, Ed. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it nourishes me. It, it, it powers <laughs> me. <laughs> oh it is true God. though. It's like the one thing I get, like I get so immediately animated mm-hmm. when I start talking about insurance um like i i just can't help it like it 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 fucking it animates me uh so much um just like the the is fucking the the hatred is like lightning running through my my body i've dissociated multiple times in this episode and not just like a sort of like blank eye stare just like uh out of body sensation thinking about uh how total and complete the victory in many arenas feels when we talk about them. You know, how much of the political economy is wrapped around them and how much this is like such a sound systemic failure. And it is hard to imagine outside of their complete abolition of revolt, things not going their way. I keep going back to the metaphor of like, they are they are flailing, you know, they're drowning, they're flailing, they're floundering, and they are grabbing on to anybody they can to stay afloat. But in reality, what that means is they're just pulling us all down with them. Yes. Yeah. 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 Speaking of letting the hate flow through you, um, I think you know that 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 all works out really well as a nice segue to um, our our premium episode over on the, the <laughs> premium feed at patreon.com slash this machine kills, where I know we're gonna be talking about something oh. that makes Ed uh, extremely animated and uh, um, uh, vi- violently 
violently angry, um, which yeah. is turning nature into an asset class. What if we had like a whole um, like theory uh, and institutional practice of, of of specific corporations designed around um, turning nature into an asset class, which is held like stocks and bonds in the uh, in, in in the the, the ledger. Of, of corporations. What if we had that? And what if we had the New York Times writing a, a, a nice article about, about it, talking about it as a, um, such an interesting idea and solution for all of these problems of climate change that we've just been talking about? Doesn't that sound real nice? I let loose a guttural scream when the example in the New York Times in the opening segment is the opening segment when it turns from, yeah, you know, you don't want those grubby developers, but what if we invented an imaginary scheme where, <laughs> where nature was now an asset and nothing bad happened as a result of it? Wouldn't that be wonderful? And I, f I could feel my blood uh, start to get warm as I realized what was going to happen in this article, which is that, like, of course, since we last talked about nature as an asset in debt, uh, the motherfuckers have been thinking about it and proposing vehicles and instruments and markets and structures that will allow it to happen instead of just like issuing a report and a brief overview of why we should commodify, like, fully commodify and assetize nature, right? So now it has moved from like, uh, infuriating me to making me lose my fucking mind because now we're now it's gonna start really fucking happening and it and I can't express to you listener how much I fucking hate this idea I hate this idea with all my fucking heart and I and I, and I would like to get all the people responsible for it into one room just so I could talk to them uh, and I just want to talk to them about what the fuck is going on. Um, but we get to, well, yeah, we'll have a fun, we'll have a fun little episode talking about that. Won't we? Yes, we will. Uh, talk, talking about, talk about make the system scream. <laughs> yeah. Make, make me fucking scream. That's what it's doing. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, that is what we're going to get into over in the Patreon feed um, as we pair that with uh, our next chapter book club episode on mute compulsion. Um, so find that there at patreon.com slash this machine kills. And until next time, later. Adios. Adios. Yo, 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 yo,